The United States of America has some of the greatest founding documents in the history of the world. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, our two founding documents, contain powerful statements of the right of the people to consent to their government and the right that those free people have that, are, that have been given to them by their creator. The case and the logic for freedom set forth in the Declaration of Independence flows from its most quoted statement. Yeah, the most quoted statement in the Declaration of Independence, and you're familiar with it. I'll have it up on the screen for you. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, there's a lot of great stuff right there contained in that paragraph. A lot of great stuff. But I want to focus on that last phrase there that you see. That last phrase that you see there. Uh, the Declaration of Independence here states that God, the Creator, has given each person the right to pursue happiness. So, Thomas Jefferson and those that, you know, contributed, wrote down, hey, you have a right, you've been given a right by God to pursue happiness, to pursue it. Now, I want to submit to you tonight that not only did he give, did God give each person the right to pursue happiness, but to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, he has given a promise of happiness, amen? Not just the right to pursue it, but if you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, a promise of happiness. Now, as we learned last week, the person who is poor in spirit, the person who understands his spiritual poverty and declares his spiritual bankruptcy before God will be blessed. And as that person puts his trust in the riches of God, the riches of his grace and mercy, he is blessed and he's granted citizenship in the kingdom of happiness. He's, he's blessed. He's happy. This, this, this awesome kind of happiness that isn't affected by the day-to-day -day things that go on in our lives. It's a happiness that, that cannot be controlled or affected by circumstance. This blessedness, it's a unique kind of happiness. It's a, it's a one-of-a-kind kind of happiness. Yes, happiness. The word here in the original Greek is the word markarios. Markarios. And the translators here in this particular uh, translation chose, they could have chosen two words in the English to put here, either blessed or happy. And they put blessed because I believe probably happy connotates the kind of happiness, the fleeting, fleeting human happiness that we're familiar with. But you see, this is a different kind of happiness. This is a blessedness. This is a joy. This is a blessedness and a happiness that, again, is not affected by circumstances. It's, the word in the Greek is an adjective, and the adjective describes its subject. The idea behind the ancient Greek word for blessed here is happy, but it's, it's the truest, godliest happiness in the universe. Not in our modern sense of merely being comfortable or entertained at the moment. As I told you last week, the, the same word for blessed here 
which again means happy, is applied to God. God is this kind of happy. Amen. In 1 Timothy 1.11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, of the happy God, of the Markarios God. So just as, it, as God is this type of blessed, you can be this type of blessed if you are a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. So citizens of the kingdom of heaven are given a bill of blessedness, a promise of happiness, amen? And it starts with becoming citizens to begin with. Nothing should bring us true happiness more than knowing we're God's people, amen? You, you, when you realize you're God's people, when you realize you're in the kingdom of heaven, when you realize you're a citizen of God's city, wow, man, just remind yourself of that when things start going downhill in your day. Put, lift up your head. Lift, let the Lord be the glory and lifter of your head. Why? Because you're a citizen of heaven. Amen? Starts with being a citizen. But here in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues in what has been termed the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. The citizen of heaven is blessed. The citizen of, ha- of heaven is happy and has several attitudes that become his characteristics. He's blessed and he has certain attitudes that become his characteristics. These Beatitudes are the attitudes that the blessed and happy citizen of heaven possesses. So tonight we're going to go through, I was going to tackle two more, three more, but I'm only going to go through two, two tonight. Um, so we're going to look at the, the next two, which of course follows that first and foundational first one of being poor in spirit, and as a result of being poor in spirit, becoming a citizen of heaven. So let's look at these next two, and as citizens, make sure that we are taking on the proper attitudes of heaven's citizens. So let's pick it up, verse 4 of Matthew 5. It says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Wow, short text tonight, so you should actually memorize these verses. Amen? Go ahead and take that on as a homework assignment. Amen? The point of number the first point tonight is this, the blessedness of a, of a proper response to our woeful state. Jesus goes on here and says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who, who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, at first glance, this can seem as a contradiction, what we might call an oxymoron. You're familiar with oxymorons, um, you know, like sweet and sour, Right? You go to a Chinese restaurant, you get some sweet and sour pork, sweet and sour chicken. Yeah, it's got sweet and sour. Seems like it's an oxymoron. Or jumbo shrimp, right? Go down here to Squid Lips and get yourself some jumbo shrimp, right? That doesn't seem to make sense. Here Jesus is saying, blessed, happy are those who mourn. What? How can this be? This seems a contradiction. Forrest Gump, now our, our dear brother David is up in uh, Savannah, Georgia, and I was texting him with the other day with him, and I said, well, what you need to do is go downtown Savannah and sit on the, the bench, the bus stop where Forrest Gump sat and have somebody 
take a picture of you, and then you can put that out on your, on your Instagram, amen? And just say, you know, life's like a box of chocolates or something like that. But Forrest Gump said in the movie, he said that he and Jenny went together like peas and carrots. Who said that? Peas and carrots, right. The only person of, of South Coast Church that knew that? Come on, folks. What is this? I mean, you're either too uptight or whatever. I mean, we got to loosen it up here a little bit. Forrest Gump said that he and Jenny went together like peas and carrots. And I want to tell you tonight that happiness and mourning over our sin and our woeful state more than go together. Jesus is emphatically saying that we will be blessed if we mourn. We'll be blessed if we mourn. You'll be happy if you mourn. Now, are you going to believe the words of Jesus? Are you going to take him at his word? Now, let's examine how these two opposing states of being go together. Happiness and mourning. The Beatitudes flows, they flow from the very first one. When you come face to face with your own spiritual poverty, it should produce mourning. It should produce a sadness. It should produce a sorrow. When you realize your own lack of spiritual assets before God, the only logical and proper response is to mourn over this state that you find yourself in. It's the, it, you, you will have blessedness in the proper response to your, to your woeful state. You'll be blessed, you'll be happy if you, you have a proper response to your woeful state. So it's a logical response, it's the proper response to mourn over your poverty of spirit. It's, it's, it's not the only response. It's not the only way you can, go. you can go. You can go a different route on it. You can have a different type of response. You can come face to face with your sin and the fact that you are, 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 are lost in your sins, dead in your sins, and on your way to eternal separation from God, and you can respond in a different way. But this is the way that someone who's going to become and, and, and live as a citizen of heaven, this is the response to, to mourn over our woeful state, to mourn over it. In the Bible, you see that there are two kinds of sorrow, two kinds of mourning, two kinds of sorrow that are presented in the Bible. Our response to all sin should be sorrow. Our, let me say that again. Our response to all sin should be sorrow. And, 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 and when I wrote that in preparation in this sermon, I, I, I really just had a check in my spirit. I just had a check in my spirit as I wrote it down and I felt like God had me write that because it's true. I think God wants us to be mournful. I, he wants us to be sorrowful over our sin. The question is, are we? Are we in 2015, are we, are we mournful? Are we sorrowful over sin? We need to be. Now again, there are two kinds of sorrow. There are two kinds of sorrow that you can have over sin. You can actually be sorry for sin and it produced two results. And the Bible contrasts these two responses to sin. The first one is a worldly sorrow. The first one is a worldly sorrow. Perhaps the greatest example of worldly sorrow in the Bible is that of Judas Iscariot. You, you remember Judas, Judas Iscariot. He was one of, of the 12 disciples. He was one that was chosen by the Lord to be one of his disciples. And he was the one who, who betrayed 
Jesus. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And how did he betray him? He, he, he let the chief priest know the location of Jesus on a particular night so that the chief priests, the rulers of Israel, could come and arrest Jesus and bring him into custody at, at a certain time. And so he, he agreed to this betrayal. He received 30 pieces of silver for it, and he betrayed, it, betrayed him. And how did he do it? He, he betrayed him. Remember in the garden, Judas came and, and he greeted him with a kiss. And, and it's that famous, that famous Judas kiss, that kiss of betrayal that, that he betrayed the Lord with. Now in the aftermath, when he realized what he had done, when, 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 he, when he came to, when he came to his senses, when he came to, to realize what he had done, Judas thought about the whole thing and, and, he, and he had remorse. He, he, he had sorrow, but it was a worldly sorrow. If you have your Bible, turn over to Matthew 27. Just same book of the Bible that we're in tonight, but turn over to Matthew 27, verse 3. And I, and I want to read this where it says Judas' response to his sin. Matthew 27, 3, it says this. Then Judas, his betrayal, betrayer, seeing that he had been, been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. In other words, they said, that's your problem now. We, we, we're not concerned with the fact that you're remorseful over this situation. But look at what happened in verse 5 of Matthew 27. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. He went out and hanged himself. Now there's a response to our sin that produces a worldly response, a worldly sorrow. It's a sorrow, but it's a worldly sorrow, the Bible would say. And, and there are people that get caught up in, in heinous situations. There are people that get caught up in, in situations, in, 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 in domestic situations. That, that, that murder the other night. That murder the other night at the food court was a domestic situation. What happened? Who knows what happened? They were probably involved in a situation. Maybe one of them cheated. Maybe they were in some type of financial distress. Maybe he was just anger over something. She was angry at him and going to leave him. Maybe she had already left him and she was going out of the house to go to work. What was the response? It brought, it brought a worldly, worldly response. A worldly response to the sin. So certainly Judas was sorrow, sorrowful. He was sorry. He was remorseful. He was crushed, but he had a worldly sorrow. In, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, Paul compares and contrasts worldly sorrow with godly sorrow. He, he, he makes this, this contrast and comparison of worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And this is what Paul says about worldly sorrow. It's 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, and you'll see it up on the, on the screen there. The sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world produces death. Yeah, they, they become sorry. They become sorry. You see people that get caught up into, into uh, situations where they get so down, down the stream in their sin. And, 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 and certainly they might be remorseful, but the only way they feel out to get out of it is, is to kill somebody else and then probably kill themselves it's it's it ends in a tragedy now Paul is 
comparing and contrasting this worldly sorrow and godly sorrow to them in 2 Corinthians. And he's actually commending the Corinthians for responding with a godly sorrow. And we'll get into a godly sorrow in a second here. But he's contrasting that and he's commending them for the response that they gave to sin. But in the first letter, if you read 1 Corinthians, you discover that he wasn't commending them for their response to sin, the sin that was happening in their congregation. And, and you see, you had, a, you, had a really, you had a really bad situation in the church there in Corinth. You, you had a really, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a really bad situation. This is, this is something that, that, that may have ended up on, uh, you know, one of the tabloid magazines of the day of Corinth. You know, you read it there at 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul talks about that they had a man in the church that was having a sexual relationship with his, the wife of his father. And yeah, this is the situation. Read about it in 1 Corinthians. You have the Bible. Sometimes it gets like, you know, it's PG-13 and R, and sometimes it's, you know... You read it. You know, there's, there's some spots. I know where they are. <laughs> and uh, so this is the situation. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he's, he's, he says, guys, guys, this is a bad situation you got going on here in the church. This is really bad. This is bad. How bad? This is real bad. He, he, he goes so far as to say this. You don't even hear about this stuff amongst the non-believers. Can you imagine an apostle coming to a church here in America and saying, look, what's going on in this church, you don't even, because I hear pretty much everything's going on in the world among the Gentiles, among the non-believers. But Paul in Corinthians, in Corinth of all places, the California of the day, the Las Vegas of the day, I've had guys that, they, they, you know, they do, they do sermon series through, uh, through Corinthians. You know, what, what's, what, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. No, it don't. <laughs> Amen? And Paul says, hey, this is bad. He says, now look, this is the response that you guys had. Look at it in verse, 1 Corinthians. Actually, go to the next verse. That should be 1 Corinthians. That's my fault. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2, and he says, and you are puffed up and not, and not rather mourned. He says, you haven't mourned over this situation that's in your church. We, we, we should be mourning. We should be, we, we, let this series get into our heart. God, let this series get into my heart in 2015 that we grieve and that we mourn over our sin, the very sin that has separated us from God, the very sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross of Christ that we sing about. Thank you, God, for the blood that ran down, but it's sin that brought him there, and we should be mournful over it. Oh, dear God, you're puffed up over this situation. Who knows, it was probably people sitting around in corners talking about, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear about so-and-so? Yeah, no, you're puffed up about this and you, and you, would, have, you would rather, you would, you should have mourned. You should have mourned. Now, that was the worldly sorrow. Now, the godly sorrow, the second type of sorrow. 
Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul contrasts worldly and godly sorrow, and Paul praised the Corinthians for responding in godly sorrow. Evidently, they heeded the message. They were confronted with the sin in the church and perhaps even in their own lives. And that's what happens when, when, when sin gets confronted and there's, and there's discipline. When someone else is being disciplined, when someone else is caught in a sin, we shouldn't go, ha, 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 look at what them. No, we should be mournful for them and for ourselves, knowing that we, too, are capable of, of grievous deeds. And let it be that moment where we say, God, help me. God, help me. Amen? They were confronted with the sin in the church and, and again, perhaps even in their own lives, and they responded in godly sorrow. What kind of sorrow is this? Well, let's go back to our main text, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you'll be happy, blessed if you mourn. Blessed are you, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus says you'll be happy, you'll be blessed if you mourn. The word mourn here is a very strong word. The Greek word for, uh, to mourn used here is the strongest word for mourning in the, in the Greek language. And they have, you know, when they have words like this, they'll have two and three and four words. They have four words for love. We have one. We love pizza and we love our wives. We don't know how to differentiate, you know, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, we, we have one word. They had four. Mourning, this word that, that Jesus uses is the strongest word for mourning in the Greek language. It is the word which is used for mourning the dead, for the passionate lament for one who was loved and now has deceased. And what are you mourning over? What are you mourning over? You're mourning over your own sin. You're mourning over that which brought your own death. Can you imagine, you know, you go and cry for someone else. You know, here what we're doing, we're weeping for, we're weeping for that which brought our, our own spiritual death is what's happening here. This morning, this sorrow that Jesus is talking about is not a worldly sorrow. He's talking about a godly sorrow. He's talking about a godly mourning, and it leads to repentance. See, the other kind of sorrow, the worldly sorrow, it leads to death. It leads to destruction. leads to misery. But the godly sorrow, this type of mourning, it leads to repentance, and it leads to salvation. Look, at this is the way that Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 7.10, that same passage that we've just been referencing where he's been contrasting worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. He says, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. In other words, if you have this type of sorrow, if you mourn over your sin in this type of way, if you have a godly sorrow, it's going to lead you to repentance. You're going to change your mind. You're going to agree with God about your situation, and he's going he's gonna to be right there to forgive you. He's gonna, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The word confession, the idea of repentance is turning, changing your mind. Changing your mind. I was going my way, now I'm going to go God's way. That's the idea of repentance. You want to repent of your sins? How you repent of your sins is you were going in this direction, you were going in your way. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of, of, of us have gone our own way. Repentance is saying, okay, I realize I've done that. Now I'm going to go your way, God. 
Confession is agreeing. Confession is agreeing with God, saying, yeah, this, was, this is sin. I confess my sin to you, God. And if we do, he's faithful and just. Mary Jo read it in the worship time. You know, he says, come, let us, rant, let us reason together. You don't think God's reasonable? He's very reasonable. He says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow because I'm going to cover them. I'm going to wash them. If you come to me, it's a trade. It's the best deal available in the universe. Remember, let's make a deal. Yeah, this is the one you want. Door number one. This is the one you want. Jesus says, you want this door or that door? No, you want this door. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Now, once you go from mourning to repentance to salvation, and then where do you go from there? Well, number one, Paul says you're not going to regret it. (laughs) You're not going to regret it. You're not going to wake up and go, oh, goodness, what did I do? Where am I? You know, like people who go out and they, they're on drugs and they're on alcohol and they're, you know, they're just getting loaded, they're getting wasted, they're, they're on all kinds of stuff and they go through life and they don't remember anything. Wow, no, you're, you're going to wake up and you're going to go, wow, <laughs> I don't regret that. That's the best. And, 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 and I'm standing here right now and I can say I don't regret it. Amen? I don't regret it. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn For what? For they shall be comforted. Those who mourn over their sin and their sinful condition are promised comfort. God, through his son Jesus Christ, comes alongside and he's, he's the God of comfort. He's the God of comfort. And he comes to comfort us. You know, when when the prophet Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah coming, he says, Comfort, comfort to my people. Comfort to my people. Why? Because Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes into your life, he's, he brings comfort to your sorrowful situation, to your mournful situation. How can he do it? How can he do it? Because he's victorious. He's victorious over sin in the grave. And he walked this walk and he walked this world. And the Bible says that he was a man of sorrows. Who are you going to get comfort from? You're going to get comfort from a God who came to this world and was a man of sorrows. Was a man of sorrows. And he comes alongside those that are sorrowful for their sins. Amen? Wow. A man of sorrows. (laughs) So where does the comfort come from? Where does the comfort come from? It comes from the Lord. People, people, you know, they reject church. They reject church and they say, look, I ride by all these churches and it just seems to be that, that that's all about making you feel bad. <laughs> that's all about making you feel guilty. That's all about making you feel like, well, you know, you're a loser and you're bad and God doesn't love you. What, it couldn't be anything more opposite from the truth. The, the, the church is the place that's the ground of truth that delivers the grace of Jesus Christ that says, you know what? Yeah, you're dead in your sins. You've done things in your life where you've walked away from God and that sin has produced a death in you. And the only way, the only way is for you to turn from those sins and turn to God and, and be mournful over those sins. Realize the poverty of your own state 
Come into the kingdom. Come and mourn over your sins. And like God, the God of comfort, the God who, who walked this world as a man and, and was a man of sorrows, let him comfort you. Let him provide that forgiveness that you need. Amen? Those who mourn can know something special of God. The fellowship of his sufferings. A closeness to the man of sorrows who the Bible says was acquainted with grief. He was acquainted with grief. And so he's, he's, he's close to the person who's sorrowful, who, who's mournful, who has a godly sorrow. You, you want God to be near you. Just be a person that's mournful. Mournful over, over your sin and come to him. And he says, you will be comforted. You will be comforted. Okay, number two. Number two tonight and moving forward. See why I couldn't do three? Amen? Number two, verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now pay attention on this one. I'm going to blow some of you guys' minds with some of this stuff. Listen to this. The second, this is the blessedness of the proper disposition of the citizen of heaven. The blessedness of the proper disposition of the citizen of heaven. The second beatitude tonight, which is really the third one, is the blessedness of the proper disposition of the citizen of heaven. What's a disposition? The dictionary tells us this. A disposition is the predominant or prevailing tendency of one's spirits. A natural, mental, and emotional outlook or mood, a characteristic attitude. That, that attitude that is the characteristic attitude that you have. This is a disposition. You have this disposition. What's your disposition? Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. What is meekness? It's been one of the, it's, it's, it has been greatly misunderstood. Meekness is probably, it's a word in the Bible that's probably one of the most misunderstood words. Blessed are you if you're meek. People look at meekness and they, and they misunderstand it as passiveness and weakness. Passive, passivity and weakness. But actually, meekness is neither one of those. <laughs> meekness is neither weak nor passive. Amen? It's impossible to translate this ancient Greek word, the word praus, meek, with just one English word, really. It has the proper, uh, the idea of the proper balance between anger and indifference of a powerful personality properly controlled and of humility. In the vocabulary of the ancient Greek language, the meek person was not passive or easily pushed around. The main idea behind the word meek was strength under control. Strength or power under control. So it's not, it's not weakness at all. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Like a strong stallion that was trained to do the job to do a job instead of running wild. Like taking a stallion, a wild stallion, that just is out of control, he's out there just out of control, and he's trained, he's brought under control to run a race. That's the, that's the idea of meekness. Now this reminds me immediately, it, it takes me back to my childhood, amen, to the movie Black Stallion. Black Stallion, you remember the movie Black Stallion? Raise your hand, some of you don't remember. 
when I, when, I, when I got into this, I was like, man, I should dig that. Where can you, where, you know, is, is Black Stallion on Netflix or something? I don't know. But it reminds me of the Black Stallion. It was the story of this powerful black stallion. And in the beginning of the movie, you see this powerful horse that men are trying to restrain it with these ropes, and they're on this ship. They're on this ship off the coast of North Africa, and they're trying to restrain this horse, this stallion. And, 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 and I read this. I, I, I looked at some Cliff's notes to, to brush up on the black stallion. And in Arabic, one of the guys trying to restrain the black stallion with these ropes calls it a name in in uh, Arabic, it's the devil. He calls it the devil. He calls the horse the devil. Well, if you've seen the movie, the little boy is curious about this horse, and he comes down to the little stall that's on the ship, and he feeds it some little sugar cubes that he stole from the, the dining hall on the ship. Well, that night, the, the ship catches fire, and the boy is shipwrecked, and he's shipwrecked with the horse, and they become friends and they're discovered, make a long story short, they make it all the way back to New York from, from, from North Africa, and the boy is able to bring this wild stallion, this devil, under control so that you actually see the boy actually even riding the horse. That's a black stallion, so I don't know if I've, I've had, you know, if you're going to go out and try to find that, you know, on, on, on some type of a service or something and see that, dig that up from somewhere. But really what it tells me is that we're all kind of like that, black stallion. Really before God, before we come to God, we're all kind of like a bucking bronco. We're a black stallion that's out of control. We're really like a brute beast before God. You know, sometimes the truth hurts. You know, really, I'm a brute beast before God? <laughs> yeah. When you're in the other kingdom... When you're in the other kingdom, you can be a brute beast before God in your rebellion and your sin. And, and I'm going to try to go through this quickly, but I want to talk to you about the greatest example of this in the Bible, and it is mind-blowing, actually. It's the example of King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's the king of all places, Babylon, the other city. We talked about the tale of two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Here we have the story of the king of Babylon. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And Daniel comes and interprets the dream for him. You can find all this in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar tells his dream and Daniel explains it. In the dream, Nebuchadnezzar is a tree. He tells him, I see this tree, and it's this big tree and whatever. And, and so, so he's telling Daniel his dream, and then Daniel's going to explain it. So Nebuchadnezzar, in the dream, he's this tree. And Daniel said, and you saw the, the watcher, which is really a, an angel. A watcher is an angel, okay, this, that, that language is not too familiar to a lot of people, but it should be, should be familiar. This watcher uh, comes down and, and, uh, from heaven with a decree that the tree should be cut down. Now turn over to Daniel chapter 4 real quick. And we're going we're gonna to go through this real quick, but you're, you're going to see this and it's going to be wild. Look at... Uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 23. And I'm going to read three verses. It says this. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher 
a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beast of the field till seven times passes over. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. So here's what Daniel's saying is, I'm about to tell you what this dream is. You had this dream that you're a tree. An angel came down and said, cut down the tree, but don't cut it all the way down. Leave the stump and wrap it around and bind it and throw it out in the field and put it out there and water it and just let it be out there with the wild beasts. Okay? You say, what on earth? Some of you are going, really? Really? It's in the Bible? Yeah. Verse 25. They shall drive you. Now, he, this, is, this is Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Okay, what? Okay, here's the situation. Nebuchadnezzar is an ungodly king. He's an ungodly king. He, he came in and he destroyed, uh, brought destruction to Jerusalem. He took captives of the Hebrews, of the Israelites, brought them into captivity. And, and, and he's a brute beast before God. And now God's going to show him what he is. And so... This is all going to happen, and it says in seven, until seven times is passed over. This is a Bible way of saying seven years. So this is, going to, this is going to take seven years for this to happen. So what would happen? He would, he would actually cease to live like a man. He would be out in the grass like a beast. And Daniel says it's going to be seven years that, this, that you're going to live like this. So Nebuchadnezzar was going to be humbled. From this, brute, from, this, from, from this brute beast before God, this awful king of, of, of Satan's kingdom. And he's, he's going to be a beast. He's going to be out in the field. Now, what is this? He's going to be a beast? Now, what you have is uh, you have the idea of, I'm going to throw out a term here for you, lycanthropy. Write that down and bring that up at the water cooler on Monday morning. Last week, it was two weeks ago, it was like Dute Q4 or whatever. This week, it's lycanthropy, all right? Bring that up. Lycanthropy is the professed ability or power of a human being to transform into a wolf or to gain wolf-like characteristics. Not to be confused with shape-shifting, the term comes from the Greek lycanthropos, which is where we get our word eventually through the Latin for werewolf. So lycanthropy, we see this in a lot of science fiction, right? We see this, this idea of lycanthropy down through the years. It's been a current theme in recent books and movies. So when you, whenever you see lycanthropy, this is all the, all the Dracula movies, all the werewolf movies. What was the other series? I never saw one of them. Twilight, all the Twilight movies. This is all lycanthropy. It's all lycanthropy, okay? Look at this. This is what... This is what we are, really, this is what we are before God. Before God, without God, we're just a brute beast. We're a brute beast. Now, take that down. 
Now, what really happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Did he become a werewolf out in the, in the grass? Probably not. But here, here's what some have suggested. Not an actual lycanthropy, but what is actually in the, in the psychological world called a clinical lycanthropy. A clinical lycanthropy where one believes that he or she is an animal or can turn into an animal. It is a mental disorder with psychological causes as con contrasted to legendary lycanthropy. So it was shown to Nebuchadnezzar that he was a beast before God and you're going to be out there and you're going to be out there for seven years. You were the king, you were in the palace, you were ruling, but you're going to be out in the field for seven years without God. He was a beast. Now, there's a lycanthropy, there's a clinical lycanthropy. Let me submit to you a spiritual lycanthropy is what we all have without God. A spiritual lycanthropy. We're, we're, we're spiritually beasts before God because we're rebellious, we're out of control, we're like that wild stallion. Amen? But here's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? This is an awesome story. In, in Daniel chapter 4, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar is that this whole process, it humbled him. It humbled him, and it brought him to a place of meekness before God. This seven years living out in the, as a beast out in the field and being wetted by the dew of heaven out there, it humbled him and produced a meekness in his life, and, and it brought this powerful, rebellious king under control. Amen? Look at that, look, look over at verse 34 in Daniel 4. You still in Daniel? Look over in Daniel chapter 34. And this is, what, this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. This is what Nebuchadnezzar says after this whole thing was resolved. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and the glory of my kingdom my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now, this is, this is the real kicker. This is the real kicker, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor who? The king of heaven. The king of heaven. All of whose works are truth and his ways justice and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Wow. Now what, a great commentator that I respect, Chuck Missler, he says, you know, I, I'm not going to be surprised to get to heaven and see Nebuchadnezzar. Now we're probably not going to see Belshazzar, <laughs> right? But look at this, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He's praising the king of heaven. Why? Because he's been brought under that place of meekness. Power brought under control. The control of the king. The control of the king. And that's exactly what meekness is. Let's go back to Matthew 5 and wrap it up. Are you still with me? 
We're wrapping it up now. Look at that. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The response of the person who is acknowledging the king of heaven, the lordship of Jesus, is meekness. This is the disposition of the citizen of heaven. You could be before you're saved, before you're walking around and and whatever, you're just all out of control and you're just a brute beast and you're going to tell people and don't let that guy come near me because I'll give him a piece of my mind and we'll take it out back. Okay, that's Nebuchadnezzar. When you come into the kingdom of heaven, you take on the disposition of someone, a brute beast, (laughs) who's been brought under the control of the king and you've been come for for a noble purpose and a noble cause and a noble job that you've given to live for him in this world. Amen? Meekness. To be meek towards others implies freedom from malice and a vengeful spirit. Christians, just we need to put on meekness. We need to put on meekness. We We don't need to seek vengeance Vengeance is mine, says the Lord of hosts. We don't need to seek vengeance. Oh, we want to. Vengeance is one of those things that almost tugs at us. But the meek have been brought under the control of the Lord. The meek who can be angry but restrain their wrath and obedience to the will of God. And will not be angry unless they can be angry and not sin. Nor will will they be easily provoked by others. The men who suffer wrong without bitterness or desire for revenge. Meekness. To be meek means to show willingness to submit and work under proper authority. Blessed, happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We can only be meek, willing to control our desires for our rights and privileges because we are confident God watches out for us. We don't have to be vengeful over here we can be meek because we know that God is going to avenge God is going to God is the God of justice and if there's something that's been taken from us God is going to sort it all out in the end and we're going to live forever we're going to live forever in the Lord in the kingdom and we're going to have what God has for us we don't have to be fearful and we don't have to be vengeful we have to just put on meekness and we will inherit the earth Through the first three Beatitudes, we notice that the natural man finds no happiness or blessedness in spiritual poverty, mourning, or meekness. These are are blessings. These are blessed states of the spiritual man, the citizen of heaven. Amen? Poverty of spirit. Mournful over sin. Meekness having been brought under control. And the question tonight as we close is have we been brought under the control? Have we bowed the knee and been brought under the control of the king of heaven? 